Good morning and welcome to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. I'm Stephen Spitz. On today's show, can stress, especially repeated stress, affect our ability to think? And can these possible effects be measured using magnetoencephalography? We'll ask Dr. Julius Stephen of UNM's Mind Research Network. Dr. Julius Stephen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, I, I'm really fascinated by your work on stress and neuroscience, and would like to start with trying to better understand what stress is. What's the stress response? What are the consequences of stress? Then I'd like to turn to how you can actually measure the stress response on brain function, and finally, talk about some of your seminal research in the area of stress and neuroscience. But I do have a preliminary question. You are a physicist, but I saw on your CV that even as a graduate student, you were directly involved in magnetoencephalography. How do those two things fit together? Good question. Uh, yeah, so as I was in graduate school for physics, um, I decided that I was really interested in finding projects that were uh, more directly related to helping people. Um, and my advisor at the time uh, had suggested this field, magnetoencephalography. Um, he was a nuclear physicist, and many of the nuclear physicists had moved into medical physics. Uh, and that is really, uh, you have the expertise in order to understand and run these big imaging machines. Um, and that's really how I jumped into the field. Uh, and when I started doing research in MEG and trying to understand the brain, um, it really became very fascinating to me. And I've been motivated to continue that work ever since. And so you, you, you use physics in doing this? Yeah. Uh, so magnetoencephalography is really measuring the magnetic fields that are coming from your brain. Uh, and in order to understand those magnetic fields, you do need to have an understanding of the physics underlying that. Um, how can you determine where those uh, sources are coming from in the brain? Um, and how can you most effectively measure that activity? Okay. So let's, let's return then to the basics of stress. Like, uh, so what is stress and what's the stress response? Yeah, so, I mean, stress is different for different individuals, right? So um, some experiences may not be stressful um, to certain individuals, and then that same experience may be stressful to others. Um, so it, it's really very individual. Um, but so maybe one definition of stress is how you respond to that individual event. Uh, and we have what we call the stress response system, uh, and that um, when you get exposed to a stressful event, um, then we have an increase in cortisol, and that activates a number of different um, physiological responses. Um, this is what we often call the fight-or-flight response. Uh, so if you run into a threatening situation, for example, um, increasing cortisol in your body can help you respond to that threat more quickly. Um, so it's very important, obviously, um, for our own safety to be able to respond more quickly, to be, um, you know, kind of have heightened awareness of our situation. So that is, um, from a physiological perspective, is really how stress is often defined. So is there a, an evolutionary basis for this? Is there a reason why we react to things this way? I would say there's a very strong evolutionary <laughs> um, basis for this, right? So, um, you know, if you're 
out in the field and you have to worry about, I don't know, a lion coming attacking you or something. Um, it's it's very useful to be able to um, respond quickly to to some type of threat and, you know, either decide to fight or flee. So, so what I read were, was that there's things called glucocorticoids that are caused by stress. And the glucose sounds like glucose and the corticoids sound like a steroid. So is that, is that what's happening? Yeah. So cortisol is, um, I see. <laughs> is, is part of the glucocorticoid system. I see. Uh, and, and yeah, so it, it, it upregulates a lot of things, um, when you get exposed to stress and, and that's what, uh, facilitates, you know, probably both your brain response as well as um, the rest of your body, right? Get you ready to run. <laughs> and your brain actually remembers this event, right? So if you come across, you're walking in the same field and you knew where the lion came last time. So that's part of what you're thinking is like, hey, the lion might come again. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's very important, obviously, to have that memory, you know, so memory is an important component of, of stress uh, and can be very beneficial um, to allow you to understand when things might be threatening. Um, and then, you know, it can also be perhaps detrimental if you, um, if there it really isn't um, a threat, a continued threat um, and those memories continue to haunt you, for example. But, but let's just say, you know, you, you always have to walk across this field and you're always coming across a lion. Somehow you make it through. Is there some lasting effect on your brain? Is there an effect on brain function? Yeah, so it, it depends on the individual again. Yes. Right? So, but you're um, going to find, I mean, most people are going to be stressed by being attacked by a lion. Right? That is very true, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but in terms of how you respond to that, so for many individuals, you know, it would just lead to this kind of enhanced response where, you know, you're probably just uh, more um, more aware of your surroundings uh, than if it's a non-threatening situation. Um, but other individuals may react in a way where it's very difficult for them to cross that field. Does it affect higher thinking? Yeah, so attention is a really key component to being aware of your surroundings, um, and attention is considered an executive function or a higher level thinking. Um, obviously, memory, uh, working memory uh, is is higher level thinking. So all of these things really come into play. Uh, and, and so, yeah, the frontal part of your brain is, um, is more activated. The amygdala, which really... Um, response to threat, for example, um, gets activated in, in response to a threatening situation. And so when the amygdala keeps getting activated, does it actually change? Does it grow? Does it change in any way? Uh, there's some indication for people who are repeatedly exposed to um, stressors that you could potentially end up with um, larger size uh, to your amygdala. Uh, and then there's some uh, confusing <laughs> results um, that in some cases the amygdala may actually end up being smaller. I see. Okay. <laughs> so most of us, including me, have never come across a lion in a field, right? But um, there are a lot of examples of modern stress. And I guess the, the first one that comes to mind to me is like a soldier in warfare, because that seems a lot like a lion in the field. And we used to call that shell shock, but now we call it PTSD. So is, is that an example of a similar characteristic? When you, would you expect a similar response? 
Yeah, I think it's a, a perfect example for kind of our modern day um, because you're um, really the, the definition of a trauma um, is that it's a life-threatening situation. So um, a lion in a field is a life-threatening situation and also going into warfare is also a life-threatening situation. So we are expected to um, respond quite strongly to, to that type of, of situation and um, very analogous. So and all these all these stressors have some kind of effect on brain function. That's right. Yep. So what about more like conventional stressors? Uh, let me name name like three obvious ones: um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and emotional abuse. Now that that's not exactly life threatening, but it's very threatening. Is there any way to compare those things, those kinds of stresses? Yeah, uh, I mean. If you're talking about physical abuse of a child, then um, it could be considered life-threatening. You know, they depend on their parents for um, safety. Uh, so if that safety is removed, uh, then it could very easily per be perceived um, by that child as life-threatening uh, because the, the individual who is intended to uh, really care for them and make sure that they're fed and, and uh, safe um, is not playing that role. Uh, so it is also very analogous. And do you, do you get the same kind of stress response or is it somehow different? Yeah, uh, it's it's a little bit complicated um, because... That's why they call it brain science? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, you know, so the, the child... The child's developing brain is different than an adult's brain. So, you know, we send adults to war. We don't send children to war typically. Uh, and, and so... Um, and there are different sort of sensitive periods um, through development. So the response may be different. Um, more intense, more, more lasting. In, in some cases, yeah. 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 And then um, in some cases, perhaps less intense or um, maybe recoverable in some, in some way. I see. So just one more question along this line, which is um, what I would call perceived social status stress stress because we're hearing an awful lot about that with with teenagers but the ceo of the company that just got passed over for chairman of the board i mean he has the same kind of perceived social status problems so is there a similar stress response for something like that well i would say that it's probably a little different right because it's not what we would consider a trauma per se it's not it's not life-threatening um, but oftentimes social stress is more of a chronic stressor rather than uh, an acute stressor. So we do define those things differently. Uh, so an acute stressor is, is an event that happens. Um, and then, you know, so when you are threatened and then presumably there's safe periods after that. So with a chronic stressor, you may not feel um, that sort of alleviation of the stress. Uh, and what is clear is that chronic stress is also important um, and can be problematic. Uh, and ultimately, the problem is, is that our stress response system was really built for this um, acute stressor. <laughs> and so, so ramp everything up, you know, be really able to respond very quickly to threats. Uh, and then it's supposed to alleviate and, uh, and the cortisol levels return to normal. Uh, so if you have chronic stress, then you have this continued increase in cortisol. 
and our bodies are not designed to deal with this chronic high exposure to cortisol, and that seems to be um, essentially toxic to the brain uh, if it continues. So I want to follow up with that, but just in one second, but let me just mention that this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. My name is Steven Spitz, and I'm talking to a neuroscientist about chronic stress and how to measure it. And so what happens when there's this toxic stress in the brain? What's the effect on brain function? Yeah, so uh, increased levels of cortisol that continue over time uh, can essentially kill off neurons is one very simple way of of putting it. Uh, And uh, there are some areas in the brain that are particularly sensitive um, because they have a lot of receptors for cortisol or glucocorticoid receptors. Uh, And so those areas are like the hippocampus, um, prefrontal cortex, uh, so can affect memory um, and other higher cognitive functioning. So that sounds bad. And then that is presumably bad. (laughs) (laughs) So, so So the next thing is we've sort of been talking vaguely and comparing, say, how can you really compare one stress to another? And that really gets to the question of how you measure it, right? And that's what you do. So, uh, and you use something called MEG or magnetoencephalography. And I hesitate to say it this way, but is there a simple way to explain it? Yeah, so um, our brain function really works on um, electrical activity. Uh, So we have a lot of, it's very complex within the brain, um, but one of the ways that we transfer information from the outside world into the brain and from different brain areas to another um, is through transfer of information um, through neurons. Uh, And those neurons are activated uh, and essentially generate electrical activity um, to transfer that information. So all we're doing when we're thinking is generating electrical activity? In the brain. That's right. You're kidding. <laughs> that's it. Like we're yeah. controlling our movement and our thinking. Everything is electrical activity. Yeah, that's right. And and it is a part of a big chemical soup, and that's how we end up with electrical activity is really um, – so underlying that electrical activity is movement of ions. Um, inside and outside of the cells. And um, and then there's a lot of support mechanisms to keep those neurons happy. Um, you know, so all of our blood that provides us with, with brain food and, and all of that. Um, but yeah, so ultimately, um, the brain activity that we're interested in, uh, the gray matter, which is the part of the thinking part of the brain, runs on electricity. And um, that electricity, we can measure um, with this technique called magnetoencephalography. We measure the magnetic fields that are generated by that electrical activity. So why is there a magnetic field? (laughs) Yeah, so if you have uh, currents, any type of current, so if you have a current in a wire, which we have lots of currents flowing all over the place, any type of current generates a magnetic field, and that's just very basic physics. So these neurons are firing, they're creating electricity, they're creating brain waves, is what I read, that have a certain amplitude and they have a certain of a certain speed. How in the world do you make? <laughs> how does someone make sense of something like that and say, "Hey, uh, this person's uh, higher levels of thinking have been affected by stress"? Yeah, there's uh, a lot of 
foundational research that has gone into understanding like how can you interpret um, these magnetic fields into actual brain function. And at the very basic level, you know, we present people with very simple stimuli and and measure activity and see what the response is. And we can see that, you know, if you present people with visual stimuli, then the visual cortex lights up, um, you get a very robust response um, to visual stimuli, and you can look at the amplitude of that and um, the latency, how quickly that information get transferred transferred into the brain. Uh, and so those those were really the foundational studies. Um, and you know, research over the last twenty years has really developed quite rapidly uh, to be able to move beyond these basic, very basic sensory functioning studies to you know, presenting people with emotional stimuli and, and how, how does the brain respond differently when there's emotional versus non-emotional stimuli. So what would example. be an example of something like that? Yeah, so you can uh, present people with uh, faces, for example. So okay. you can present them with neutral faces or happy faces or angry faces and see how people respond to that. So they may respond at a higher wave level or a lower wave level or faster and, yeah. and then but how do you make sense of that how do you normalize that and say well this is a person that has stress this is a person that doesn't have stress so in some of the ptsd studies for example um you know even at the behavioral level you can you can see that individuals with ptsd respond um, to different stimuli differently um, so they may actually respond more quickly to threatening faces, for example. Uh, and so, so the actual response is quicker. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So just if you ask them to press a button when they see... They press it quicker. Yeah. <laughs> they, they press it more quickly. I see. Um, and then you can look at that correlate within the brain as well and see similar results. And so when you, quote, look in the brain and see that, what, what are you seeing? Yeah. So we're, we're measuring activity as we're presenting these stimuli to In them. real time. In real time. That's wow. right. Yeah. And so there's a lot of processing that goes on um, from when you're presenting those stimuli to when you get um, interpretable results. Uh, but you can look at, at the timing. You can look at what areas of the brain um, are at most active when they're uh, looking at these different stimuli. Uh, so a lot of the work going back to uh, PTSD, for example, you can see increased activity in the amygdala um, if there's fear responsible responses, which is why it's been labeled kind of the fear area of the brain. I see. So are, are you looking, so you're looking at particular regions in response to a particular stimulus to see how, what the reaction is, and then how do you normalize it for the individual? Yeah, so um, with these different tasks that we present people with, we usually have some type of control stimulus um, and then uh, so that's when I was talking about neutral faces. So you may be doing a comparison um, between neutral faces and um, threatening faces, for example. So that allows you to see, um, really look at within subject variability as well as between subject variability. And like, what is the actual, like, what do you see when you see a result? Are you seeing something like an EEG or? So the initial data um, looks just like a, recorded EEG. Um, uh -huh. And the only difference is that we're measuring the strength of the magnetic field rather than the electric potential. So um, we're really measuring that same electrical activity between those two techniques. 
Uh, but then what we do is is we take that data and and process it, and we um, do what what we call source localization to try and figure out where that activity is coming from. And, and then you can look at the time course from the different areas uh, and, and see what the activity, what the dynamics within that brain area look like. Well, if you've just tuned in, this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz, and I'm very pleased to be talking to Dr. Julia Stephen. She is with the Mind Research Network at UNM. And we're talking about neuroscience. And uh, I would like to talk about this study that you did that it really fascinated me, this study. And it was a 2016 pilot study, and I want to find out what that means, a pilot study of infants of mothers. And some of the mothers had PTSD, some of them didn't. Could you just start by telling us about that study? Yeah, so this was a study to look at um, infant brain development uh, in three- and six-month-old infants. Uh, and we asked the moms um, to complete a questionnaire that was really asking them about different symptoms um, related to post-traumatic stress. So the purpose of asking that questionnaire was to see if the um, symptoms related to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, had an influence on the infant brain development. And my understanding is you, you then went back and tested these infants to see if uh, you could discern it, an influence of, PT, of PTSD on these infants, right? So we looked at the brain activity during rest um, mm -hmm. in those infants at six months of age, and um, we were looking at different neural dynamics uh, and different what we call frequency bands um, to see if, if there was a sensitivity to the mother's um, symptoms of, of stress. Uh, and and we did find um, a difference. And so there was this um, association, which really means that there was a correlation between the severity of those stress symptoms in the mothers uh, and the infant's neural dynamics. And how strong was that association? Um, it was for... So a pilot study really means that it's a relatively small sample. So we were trying to um, get an initial glimpse to see if you could see this, um, this association between moms and babies. Uh, and, and so for a small sample, it was a strong correlation. And I, I meant to ask you, you said it was a pilot study. What, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so we use the term pilot study to really... Uh, say that, you know, we, we don't really have an answer for whether we can see this direct association between some type of behavior um, and, you know, some brain measure, for example. And so uh, it's, it's kind of an initial look uh, at the data. Uh, oftentimes, pilot studies are relatively small samples. Uh, you need to do a follow-up, a larger follow-up study to kind of confirm the results. So um, the pilot study provided us, us with significant results, which is encouraging and um, really should help support um, follow-up studies. So, so where in the infant's, where in the infant's brain did you see this difference in brain function? Yeah, so it was um, primarily in the frontal temporal cortex. Uh, and, and we found a fairly strong association in, in the theta frequency band. Um, so this is... Um, in looking at neural oscillation, so the brain activity is is 
kind of increasing and decreasing at a particular frequency between four to seven hertz, four to seven times a second. Uh, and and that was that was the primary finding with that study. So here's the thing that fascinated me. Okay, so uh, it be, because you did this in such young infants, there, it raised for me the possibility that the PTSD syndrome could have been sort of quasi genetically, not experientially, not because of anything the mother did, sort of transferred to this infant and that would be a, a whole different kind of effect than ones we've been talking about. And if that can occur, if that infant is a, a, a girl, she could also transfer that uh, intergenerationally to her children. So first of all, did you have that at all in mind when you did this experiment? <laughs> we know that there are associations between, like if the mother um, is depressed or something like that, that that can have long-term impacts on outcomes for um, for their children, for example. So how does that come about? And that's that's really the question, and that's what sort of motivated um, this this side study. Uh, and and what we are trying to understand is how how can that um, you know, depression is just an example, but um, PTSD, um, similar problems. Um, you know, how how can that be transferred to the child? How does that impact their long-term outcome? Uh, and and you know that is still a very active area of research. It's still go. It, you there have been plenty of follow-up studies of your study. Um, not as many as I would like, but you know we're still in many ways trying to understand the impact of of stress. Um, so both during pregnancy as well as um, during the postpartum uh, period um, and through childhood. So, uh, is it a direct transfer of parental stress to the child? Um, there are some epigenetic uh, indi indications that epigenetics has a play. Uh, in this, uh, but it's really not really well understood in terms of how that information is getting, um, is impacting um, the children. Well, I mean, if, if there were this epigenetic transfer, how, what would be the mechanics of it? How would that happen? Well, I'm not a genetics expert, <laughs> so with that caveat, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a little bit unclear still. You know, stress uh, can cause epigenetic changes in the mother, um, and then those epigenetic changes in the expression of genes in the mother. That's right. Uh -huh. um, and then you know, really, the um, epigenetics can then change the environment within which the infant is being raised. Right. Um, so, so this is sort of an indirect. It's not really a gen genetic um, transfer of information, but it does change. Um, the environment within which the child, like if it's during pregnancy, um, you know, within, in utero, um, it may change uh, the environment within which the, the fetus is growing. Uh, and then also um, after birth, um, you know, the child, I've, there are many ways then you can uh, end up with sort of transfer of stress from, from the mother to the infant. And it may even be in the fact that they respond to their infant differently. Um, and so... Well, that would be experiential. That right? would be experiential. That's right. right. So, so we're nearing the end of the show, and my impression of both neuroscience 
and magnetoencephalography are that they've, they've been just growing exponentially. So uh, if you look at 10,000 feet, what do you see as the future here? Well, I think what uh, most of us who are, are doing this research, trying to understand brain function, are hoping is that if we understand the brain better um, and the effects on, if we talk about neurodevelopment, for, for example, um, what factors influence neurodevelopment, either positively or negatively, um, then maybe we can change the environment within which children are raised. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I would like to thank today's guest, Dr. Julia Stephen of the Mind Research Network. Thanks also to my producers, Gustafoya and Roman Garcia. My name is Stephen Spitz, and you've been listening to New Mexico People, Places and Ideas on KUNM. Podcasts of the show are available wherever you get podcasts. Search Stephen Spitz. Archives of past shows are at stephenspitz.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.